0: So very welcome to this episode of the Imperial Healthcare Business Podcast. My name is Ibi Adidugwe, and I'm your host for today. And we've got a wonderful guest with us today. We'll be talking about digital uh, therapeutics and neuromodulation. His name is Mr. Harris Akram, um, and he's a functional neurosurgeon at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery in London. He's here in personal capacity, and he'll be talking to us about some of um, this, these things around neurosurgery. So very welcome, Harris.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Ivy. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here.
0: All right. So, can you tell us about your career path so far into functional neurosurgery?
1: Um, so, if I, I I'll probably have to start um, at the beginning when I decided to go to medical school because that was, um, and it's that was uh, that was quite an unusual decision. I've always wanted to study engineering. I enjoyed fixing things and um, I enjoyed fixing cars, building machines. Um, and uh, I never envisaged becoming a doctor, but I, um, when the time came to make a decision, I thought that I'd have more fun in medical school than I would studying engineering. Um, and I thought I would be a surgeon because that's what I like to do, to work with my hands and fix things. Um, but then during medical school, I fell in love with neurology. I just thought the, the field of neurology is uh, it's challenging, it's exciting, but you need to use um, the, all the information you, you you can gather to make up a hypothesis and then um, detect or, or, or localize lesions in the central nervous system or peripheral nervous system. But I still wanted to become a, a surgeon and then I, I was introduced to neurosurgery. And that was the uh, my way in into neurology. And then as a as a resident in neurosurgery, I, I also discovered that neurosurgery can be quite surgical, especially if you're doing spinal operations or uh, big cranial operations. Uh, but their small field, um, which is functional neurosurgery, can deal directly with neurological disorders and of the function of the brain. Um, and um, and that's that that was it. It was the it was it was exactly what i what i liked to do and and i saw the effect on on the patients uh immediately you know you see the effect straight away after surgery and patients get better after surgery so it's quite satisfying um and that was uh, for me, it was a clear decision. The operations are not very challenging most of the times. They're very meticulous, but they're not very challenging. <laughs> say that, but, but not for the average you know,
0: person.
1: <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah, but the the outcome um, is very satisfying, which is why I, I picked the field.
0: Okay. And if you could just tell our listeners who do not know what functional neurosurgery is, um, just give sort of a rough idea of what it is and what it manages.
1: Neurosurgery in general tends to deal with anatomical abnormalities in in the brain. So this when it comes to a brain surgery or in the spine. So if you have a a brain lesion, a brain tumor or a blood clot, um, or if you have a slipped disc something that's affecting the normal anatomy, then you can go and correct that, try to restore normal physiology, try to restore normal anatomy by removing the lesion, um, by kind of draining an infection or removing a slipped disc. Um, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to limit um, the kind of tissue destruction that's ongoing because of the disease process. And by doing so, you improve the quality of life, you improve, um, you know, you reduce pain and suffering, which is the aim of, of all kind of medical um, endeavours. The functional neurosurgery, there, is, there isn't usually an anatomical abnormality in 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 the in the brain uh, but a functional abnormality which can result from chronic neurodegenerative disorders like parkinson's disease where you have loss of certain uh, tribes of neurons in the brain and that can lead to uh, a movement disorder so a slowness of movement or rigidity so stiffness of movement or shaking tremor and what we do is we target those circuits in the brain that are misfiring uh, by either in implanting electrodes where we can then deliver electricity to those networks and modulate the way they function. And by doing that, we restore the function that has been lost um, and get rid of any abnormal movement or... For example, in the case of, of Parkinson's disease, we um, improve the slowness of movement and reduce the need for medications. So that's the difference um, between functional neurosurgery and the, uh, the rest of general neurosurgery.
0: And and that's really uh, phenomenal in terms of the differences made for Parkinson's patients. So that leads me to the next question, which is apart from Parkinson's, what are the other conditions that have been successfully treated by functional neurosurgery? And why do you think others have kind of remained theoretical as opposed to something that we're doing for all patients within the NHS, for example?
1: That's a very good question. So the, 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 Bread and butter of, if if if, um, if you may, have functional neurosurgery is movement disorders, for patients with Parkinson's, or patients with something called dystonia, where you have an abnormal uh, muscle tone that can affect your movement, um, or tremor, um, for example, in the essential tremor or multiple sclerosis tremor. All these conditions respond very well to to deep brain stimulation and to to brain lesioning as well, directed brain lesioning, and. Um, other conditions, also, uh, like cluster headache, for example, which is a very, very pain, very rare, luckily, but a very painful condition, it's the worst pain known to man, also responds to deep brain stimulation. As we tend to get more complicated disease processes or, or um, brain pathologies, the response rate uh, tends to be unpredictable or not as high as a response in, the, in motor disorders, uh, for example, in, in surgery for mental health disorders or for depression, OCD and, and Tourette. You still get very good response in refractory cases, but it's, it's more complicated. And the reason being is that the underlying um, brain circuitry uh, is more complicated than these conditions. So the, the simplest brain circuit is the motor circuit, right? You're not really um, expected to do a lot of, um, of processing, but effectively you you know, there's a, there's a command and a program that the central nervous system would give to, to the, you know, to your musculoskeletal system to execute. Um, and there is feedback. So it's, it's, a, it's a relatively simple system. And when you compare this to um, behavior, for example, or emotion, and then then the system becomes a lot more complicated and there isn't a single circuit that we can target by implanting an electrode in.
0: Yeah, and, and thank you for explaining that. So I will ask a little bit about what was your PhD thesis on? And then I will add on to that. What you think of Neuralink, which is Elon Musk's uh, neuromodulation company?
1: So, I, uh, when I was when I was a child, the other the other thing that I was very interested in, apart from fixing cars, is building computers and programming, and um, and that's and that was that was my hobby for a very long time. Uh, and when I was training a neurosurgeon, was tra- at the end of my training, um, I had a proposal to. Um, study for a doctoral degree, um, and if the, basically it was applying um, advanced MRI imaging, so magnetic resonance imaging, um, to form the maps of the brain, so what's now called brain connectivity, and use that to inform functional neurosurgery to you know help with either building prognostic models or help with surgical targeting. Um, And it was, again, it was one of those moments of serendipity where something that I'm really, really interested in on a personal level um, became part of what I do and and what I study and actually getting paid for doing that, which which was a bonus. Um, I uh, started by... uh, building a GPU cluster. This is a a supercomputer that uses graphic cards to process um, the the connect time, the individual, um, if you you may, uh, map to the individual brain. Uh, The reason why I needed to build a computer is because without a supercomputer, it will take about two weeks to process an entire brain. And if you wanted to then use that, for surgical targeting, and um, it, it wouldn't be clinically feasible, um, unless if you, you know, if you operate on one patient every six months. Um, so that that was a very um, good opportunity to develop and um, computer and and um, and and write specific code and algorithms to map out the human brain. Then I used these methods directly in the operating theater and then and then audited the results and, and introduced some of these methods to clinical practice and they're now part of part of what we do on a day-to-day basis, um, which is a very, very nice translational um uh, work uh, and I, you know, I enjoyed it. Now I, I um, supervise my PhD student at present is doing something similar, but using artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms to map out uh, these brain regions and networks that we use in surgery.
0: Yeah, and that's that's just brilliant because. Mm the more we learn about these um, connectivity between neurons and all sorts of things in the brain, the more we can probably tackle some of these neurological diseases that we haven't been able to treat just yet. Mm. So, you know, just as you said, parts similar to what you did for your thesis is what Neuralink, the Mm. Elon Musk company, is trying to sort of get to the bottom of. (laughs) And their plan is to use that to sort of, engineer neuromodulation in all sorts of diseases as a functional neurosurgeon how practical do you think this is going to be and do you think this is the next frontier in your field
1: so i, I have i have some reservations when it comes to Neuralink. Um, i think i think the ethos is very different to what we do so our, our ethos as as doctors um is to alleviate suffering, right? At the end of the day, we want to improve function. We want to alleviate suffering. Um, and we want human beings to live, you know, a, a healthy life, a life that they enjoy um, without being affected by disease process. Eurolink uh, doesn't, my understanding is, it, although in the short term it is about, um uh, studying neuromodulation and developing your uh, brain machine interface in implants for um uh, brain or cns diseases its main aim is to enhance um humans to create sort of another species um, of, of human beings that have had implants done and they can be integrated with uh, artificial intelligence systems now I you know, I don't want to um, get into a discussion of whether this is actually feasible or not. Um, I, I just think ethically there are lots of um challenges that we need to address um before considering this and whether whether it is actually a something that we want to, to pour our resources into as a species.
0: So I'd like you to tell me what you think about the ethics of brain enhancements through implants and devices.
1: Um, I I think ethically it's very questionable so this is a um, it's a form of plastic surgery for the brain cosmetic let's say cosmetic surgery for the brain it's not all plastic surgery it's cosmetic obviously and and um I think it's, it's a very dangerous route to go down. Uh, for starters, because there are still a lot of patients who actually need um, help with brain diseases. We ought to focus on these patients, but also if we are going to um, provide um, uh, like brain enhancement therapies to patients who, let's say, are you know able to afford this type of therapy because it's undoubtedly going to be very expensive then we might end up creating a a new human species, if you you think about it, a a class of human beings who can afford to enhance their brains, who will then be more successful, even more successful, than um, other uh, human beings who can't afford this type of treatment, um, who will then end up uh, uh, propagating, let's say, that success, Um, and creating more of that that class of human. Um, And, you know, we we end up with with more um, uh, kind of, I think this will lead to more suffering um, in the majority of of humans. And I I know this is now becoming very philosophical, um, but I wouldn't want to see that happen, let alone if it's actually possible or not. But I don't think it's ethically um,
0: acceptable. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think one of the sort of safeguards of science is that we self-regulate and make sure that the things that we do um, are ultimately for the benefit of society and are not in the wrong hands. And I come back to you know, my comment about Iron Man, which is a <laughs> favourite movie of mine. You know, it, it is illustrative in that movie um, where technology gets into the wrong hands and is used to perpetuate um, different things. So, yeah, no, thanks for, for answering that question.
1: Um, having said that, it, most, most of those big projects with big funding do end up with creating new technologies and discovering findings in, um, in medicine that may not be the main aim of, of, the, of the mission, uh, but will end up helping and advancing the field of neuroscience. So I think it's a controversial subject. I think, um, I, and, it, and it, ha- it has had controversial covering as well. Um, one of the other um, issues in, in research neuroscience is actually there's, there's a lot of research that um, stems from more, Science fiction background, and from the idea that the brain is a computer somehow, and that we are tapping into that computer and unleashing the potential of that computer, uh, which is not um, is not the reality. Uh, if that's not how the brain works, uh, and I think Neuralink um, makes that assumption. But what we um, what what we want to what patients um, really want or need is not a way of reading what information uh, that's coming out of their brains, but actually um, helping with re-establishing lost sensory inputs. So patients with spinal cord injury don't um, want to be able to just stand up again, press a button and stand up without actually knowing where you know, their legs are in, in, in space. What they want to do is they want to have that sensory input, which is very difficult to reproduce. And that's why it's very important to ask the right question and to see what is actually needed uh, rather than what the, the researcher or the scientist envis- envisages to be the, you know, the what patients actually need and what's going to improve their quality of life.
0: And I I love that. Sorry,
1: that's a very long, very (laughs) long answer.
0: I actually love the way you sort of, you know, express that, bringing it back to patient centred research, patient centred, patient relevant research, because there's no point being in the lab or, you know, doing clinical trials. And actually, that's not what patients want. That's wasted money, wasted resources, wasted time, you know, that could have been invested into other things. So I I do like um, what you said about that. And so just coming back to sort of what you said about spinal cord injury patients, you know, I've seen exoskeletons being made as sort of the next new frontier to get patients moving, as you said. Do you think there is an opportunity to neuromodulate what you talked about in terms of sensation so you know their ability to to know where their their you know limbs are in space do you think there's a possibility to do that
1: so i think there is a possibility to do that and i think that's what we should be focusing on um, i think developing exoskeletons is very cool i mean that's a and with time they'll become lighter they'll become more accessible but at the end of the day they're just another wheelchair right yeah. It's, you know, they, they look like, you know, we can see patients walking with an exoskeleton, but they're actually, you know, they're just in another vehicle. And um, so without that sensory feedback, you know, our, our, what what we are are basically brains, right? That's that's who we are. And we're, we get um, sensory input from our environment and we build Um, world models and you know in inside their heads and if that um if we're not getting the sensory inputs you know if we lose um you know eyesight or or hearing or proprioception you know or so you know fine sensation touch sensation then that you know we're um we are that we are disabled, that will cause a, dis- a form of disability. If you ask most and I, and I worked in, in the spinal injury center in Stoke Mandible when I was very junior. Um, and I you know I have a lot of friends who will use wheelchairs and I, I used to go out with them um, with, uh, when we went out um, to town. The, the thing that they really want, is accessibility they want a ramp when they you know when they need to go down to use the tube that's all that, when they go to a cafe or a restaurant that's what they want and um, so i'm not saying that we shouldn't focus on on building new technology to improve mobility we definitely should do that but i also think we should do it from the perspective of of the individuals who are affected and actually um, help augment the disability in a way that will help them improve their quality of life. For me, I think that's establishing a form of sensory feedback and a form of sensory input, And it will have to be by either restoring, which I think will be very difficult to restore damaged pathways, um, or by bypassing and training uh, another sensory system to overtake the deficit. And that's something that we know can be done. If you just look at patients with um, blindness and the way that they develop um, uh, kind of new connections into their visual cortex, the part of the brain that processes um, uh, visual input, um, that would uh, imaging studies show that these areas light up with with fine touch. So they still use a part of the brain that used to process input from the eyes, um, but to process now input from um, a different, completely different sensory system, which which is fine touch. And I think that's that would be a very exciting field to focus on. Yeah,
0: and I couldn't agree with you more. I always think, you know, Google Glasses and all these other sort of visual aids probably are not being used to their maximum capacity because probably people who are visually impaired are probably the people who can benefit from these things. Um, You know, with a bit of audio, visual, Google Translate or whatever telling them what the Google Glasses are seeing. But anyway, that's a little plug for Google to get onto that. (laughs) Um, Right, so we're going to move on to another condition now. Um, Neuromodulation for chronic fatigue syndrome and ME. So for those that don't know what that is, um, it's a condition where we don't actually know what causes it, but it leaves the patient um, with such chronic fatigue. They almost can't function in their daily life. Um, and they sort of get a what we call a myopathy where their muscles are not as good and all sorts of things. And it's a real disease burden in that once people get it, it's unfortunate that you almost can't treat them and manage them. Do you think there is a possibility to be able to do some brain mapping um, and therefore hopefully develop some neuromodulation that could help this proportion of patients?
1: That's a very difficult question and um, patients with chronic fatigue syndrome or, or um, myalgic encephalomyelitis and um, tend to suffer in silence because there's very little understanding of the disease. Um, And I think that the statistics are also very, very vague because of of that. So uh, it could be that over a million uh, people are affected in the UK with chronic fatigue syndrome. I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to to actually understand um, what is the underlying pathology. In a way, the recent pandemic might actually be um, useful in shedding a light on, um, on, on brain um, processes that lead to chronic fatigue, because we know from you know, long COVID sufferers that you can suffer from, um, from fatigue that sometimes doesn't prove, which is also useful. Because uh, you can see what's happening in the brain, you can, you can study it on a, on a shorter uh, time span. The, I mean, the imaging studies in chronic fatigue syndrome usually show reduced blood supply to parts of the brain that um, would uh, drive um, function, so the uh, frontal lobes or parts of the midbrain. And neuromodulation doesn't, so far, doesn't seem to work very well when you have reduced activity in the brain. It tends to work well when there is increased activity where we can <clears throat> disrupt an abnormal process, we can we can block an abnormal signal. We, we don't do well by driving something that is deficient. That's so so I'm I don't know and I don't know of any any published experiments or studies that show that neuromodulation has helped with chronic fatigue syndrome. I also don't think it's something that functional neurosurgeons will be able to drive. I think this is something that you need dedicated clinicians specializing in chronic fatigue syndrome um, and specialized neurologists to, um, to drive this forward. And we need to start by identifying the underlying circuitry involved and then we can start designing um, therapeutics, whether pharmacological or surgical. But it is a it is a very big challenge, um, and from what I can see, just going through the literature, the all the surgical um, reports um, report on cases that are probably not chronic fatigue syndrome, but yeah. are other other conditions that have been diagnosed as chronic fatigue syndrome, which is another challenge is actually getting the right diagnosis
0: and you're you're so right on that because i think like you said a lot of these people don't present early and by the time they do present they've been through so many different specialists um, before they eventually get their diagnosis by which point often you know the disease process is already quite set in place Um, i think they're
1: also they're also quite stigmatized these patients that's correct yeah um because and, and I, I don't see patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, but I see a lot of patients with, with chronic headache, and very severe refractory headache. And they, I mentioned earlier, this is you know, patients with cluster headache have what they, what's described as the worst pain known to man. And they, they have the highest rate of suicide in all medical, other uh, medical conditions um, for something that is so rare. Um, and and yet when they're suffering an attack you can't see anything on the outside and um the suffering and pain is often just dismissed as you know just having another headache today and um, so it's it's very difficult when we can't see from the outside what's happening um uh, so these patients also suffer psychologically and um uh, and, and, and the quality of life is very affected by a condition that is invisible and we can't see it.
0: Yeah, and again, you know, you just touched on something in terms of pain management in itself. Um, often we take away the sort of physical pathological process that sets the pain pathway in place, and when we lose sight of that, when that's no longer visible, like you said, we think the patient is making it up even though neurologically, you know, the limbic system, their emotional pathways, all sensitized in the whole pain process. And that bit of it, we've not managed to switch off, um, I think, for patients with chronic pain. And so their experience and emotional reaction to the pain that they're they're getting is is something that we can't see and we can't quantify. And, you know, the traditional way to look at things is if we can't quantify it or, you know, see it, then it doesn't exist. Um, which, you know, is a bit unfortunate for these patients. So we'll move on to sort of um, brain tumours. And it's the most common tumour in children. Um, And in adults, it's also got one of the sort of worst uh, statistics in terms of outcome and survival. Do you think that um, deep brain stimulation delivered gene therapy? is a possibility for treatment for brain tumors? And do you think this will become standard in the future? I know there are some trials that have been ongoing with regards to this.
1: Yeah, so so it wouldn't be deep brain stimulation, it'd be stereotactic. (laughs) Um, So the tubes, so we can implant tubes using the stereotactic technique. So that's using the same technique to implant the electrodes in the brain, but we implant cannulas in the brain. Um, in a very very precise manner, and then we use that to deliver uh, um, either a viral vector that carries a, a, a gene um, that will then deliver the gene to the tumor cells and and um, and then uh, make a, a, a kind of effect affect the, the, the um, uh, those cells in a certain way that will then either lead to you know, cell death. Or sensitization for chemotherapy or radiotherapy mm-hmm. and it's it's certainly very encouraging i don't see it as and it's and it's an interesting way of delivering um genes to um, to tumors or to lesions it doesn't have you know i'm sure there there is a role for it in certain types of tumors i don't think it will be the you know, the ultimate way of delivering um, uh, targeted um, genes or targeted chemotherapy to tumors. What well, I think is more exciting is what um, our techniques that we have now um, available for functional neurosurgery, like something called uh, focused ultrasound. So this is an MR-guided high-intensity focused ultrasound that might be able to disrupt the blood-brain barrier in the tumor. And as you do that, you can then infuse the either the CSF or the brain, um, or the sorry, the um, uh, the blood with uh, a you know chemotherapy, immunotherapy agent, which will then find its way to the tumor where there is a you know a disrupted blood-brain barrier or sensitized uh, cells, and um, and it might be that other means of doing it is just by using. Um, certain sequences in, in MRI to, to sensitize tumors to you know, increase uptake of certain agents um, they're all really exciting areas of research um, and and I uh, we are part of we take the part in in multiple trials and in introducing um, genes to to the brain not, not personally not in uh, brain tumours, but in, in certain neurological conditions, um, including Parkinson's disease. They're all trials, and we don't really have any any kind of um, substantial data yet as to how effective how they will be. But watch the space. It's certainly an area of growth and development um, in, in neurosurgery and in stereotactic, functional neurosurgery, in specific.
0: Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more because, you know, the, the average sort of uh, survival rate after diagnosis of GBM, which is um, one of the sort of worst brain cancers to get, is 16 months. And to be able to improve on those 16 months will be quite good for a lot of people. Um, so again, just coming back to brain mapping, which is sort of the foundation and the core of what you do, how do you think this will help in conditions like spinal cord injury, which we've mentioned already, um, things like locked-in syndrome, where the patient is aware, but they can't express any verbal emotions or facial expression, um, apart from possibly blinking in some cases, or motor neuron disease or Lou Gehrig disease, as the Americans like to call it. Mm. Um, how do you think you know functional neurosurgery could play a role in managing some of these conditions?
1: I think mapping, and I wouldn't just say brain mapping because in in, oh, uh, oh, <laughs> in in these conditions I'd also say brain and spinal cord mapping. So central nervous system mapping um, It's certainly uh, promising because we can. Um, the first thing we can do is we can we can look for prognostic. Um, uh, biomarkers. So, if someone has a spinal cord injury or partial spinal cord injury, then um, connectivity imaging, diffusion imaging in the spinal cord, and um, can might be useful in, in giving the patients realistic, uh, you know, uh, prognosis. Um, so that's, and also f- for us to to learn more about what to expect. and and focus our neuro-rehabilitation efforts, for example, um, just from getting this this additional information. And we can also study things like changes that happen in the brain following spinal cord injury. Um, uh, Patients with Parkinson's disease have a, a, as the disease progresses, they start to have problems with gait. So you have gait and balance problems. Um, And it's still one of those conditions that we don't fully understand, but we know that it can um, severely affect patient's quality of life. And it tends to also um, uh, affect survival in those who are affected. And what we'd like to know is why do these things develop? Where is the disease process? Is this in in the brain or is it in the spinal cord? Um, And brain mapping, can certainly be very useful in investigating these conditions. Same thing for motor neuron disease, and it might be a very useful way of um, not just diagnosis, um, but building building prognostic models, and also might be useful in targeting therapies if we can identify the locus of of pathology uh, in the brain. You mentioned Locton syndrome. Now, that would be a condition where um, a, an implant like Neuralink might be useful because it is a way of, com- of improving communication. And it's the same for advanced motor neurone disease. So, if we can improve communication, um, you know, and, and um, uh, not just ver- you know, let's say verbal communication is probably the wrong expression. Um, but, you know, input, output communication, this would be very useful um, and mapping out those important circuits will definitely use, use brain mapping uh, can guide you know, any implantation of, of uh, a, a brain machine chip or electrodes.
0: Yeah. And and I agree with you, you know, the images people would have seen on TV would have been of Christopher Reeves um, and of, you know, so many other famous people who had diseases that allow them to have a sort of communicative tool that they use to communicate with everyone. Now, again, sort of thinking Hollywood, um, I'm a big fan of Iron Man (laughs) and a big fan of, um, you know, some of these movies, obviously with, neuromodulation or with implanted devices, there is a connectivity issue um, in terms of it's connected sometimes to a, to a sort of remote that the patient usually has, where sometimes they can you can dial up or you can dial down with an iPad or something. There are obviously security issues around this. Um, can you talk us through some of those um, security concerns with implanted electrodes and neuromodulation as a whole?
1: so the, the the new implants so when you have, when you have a let me talk about the the DBS system because this is this is the conventional system that is in use you know hundreds of thousands of patients have had these implants in um, and for us to control the stimulation um to switch it on or off or to control how much electricity is going into the brain um, we have a remote control we can then apply to the um, battery pack or the computer that's usually implanted in in the patient's chest so every the the entire system is internalized in these patients now the old systems have um, they come with a remote control and the remote control has to go directly on the skin just overlying the implant and then you can switch stimulator on or off. You can increase the parameters of stimulation and the clinician has a um, access to this that so the patient can't usually do a lot of programming or uh, the patient sometimes have a window of making changes, but it, it, this will be restricted by the clinician. Now the new implants um, can be programmed remotely. This means Usually, if you're in the same room as the patient, but there are even newer technologies where you can do the programming remotely, as in from the office, and the patient is at home. And that means if someone hacks into these implants, they might do something um, that that can interfere with with stimulation, either switching it off or increasing the stimulation, causing some unwanted and nasty side effects. Um, and that can be quite disabling. Um, and it, and that's, a, that's something that we really need to look into quite carefully, make sure that the as the technology improves and the accessibility of these devices um, is sort of, you know, or the remote accessibility improves, that security of these devices improves as well so that they can't be hacked Um, and that the patients have ultimate control and their clinicians. And I know that the new ones that we use now come in with extra safety measures and and they they can only be coupled to the um, remote control and you can't really get into them unless if you have and a certain code to get in them, into them. Um, but we know that the best systems can get hacked. So we, we can't really assume and wait until something um, to go wrong. Um, we, we need to keep on top of this. And, and, um, and we need to be aware of the possibility that these devices um, can be hacked and, and they can be communicated with um, remotely. Um, sometimes not by by clinicians, but by by a third party.
0: Yeah, and you you are correct. And I think the whole sort of uh, healthcare community is looking seriously at um, how to prevent not just devices, but everything from being hacked in the healthcare community. In the past, there used to be a thing where hackers kind of left healthcare alone because they knew what the impact was. But I think that sort of... uh, (laughs) that that that's gone away um as we see more and more s- health systems being hacked um yeah. so we kind of move on to the sort of financial side of things um what would you say to an investor into digital therapeutics into neuromodulation you know what functional neurosurgical technique or devices should they watch out for and who should they be think or what should they be looking for to investing
1: i think of the um the last 10 years we've seen a lot of um, development in in hardware, so in the in the degree, let's say the detail of um, electrode design, uh, DBS lead design, for example, and um, and in the functionality of um, these implants, um, this didn't always translate to better patient outcomes. So I think we need to focus on mostly reliability. I think when we're talking about Implants that are going into into people's bodies—they need to be reliable, right? And and companies that provide reliable implants with um, support are the ones to you know to consider. They're the ones that that I would consider when I choose an implant over a company that would give me uh, you know a, a new implant with all the bells and whistles, but they can't really support it long term or. The, the devices are not um, as reliable. The other um, advances in technology that I would um, uh, I would support are uh, has, they have to be advances in battery technology. So all these implants have batteries. They can be quite bulky, um, or they might require replacement, or they might require um, charging. So regular charging. Now, if we can get um implanted uh, devices that have small batteries that last longer and um, it will be more comfortable for patients and it be more that'll be more practical and the, the burden from having the implant uh, wouldn't be as high um, for some for some patients especially patients who don't have the ability to to charge their devices up regularly so that's something i'd um, i'd like to see you know, something that i would support but i would look for something that is reliable that is that is not not targeted towards a small um, subset of patients that um, can afford it but something that can be um, used worldwide in in you know patients in india um, and you know in in, in africa and in other parts of the world where they may not have as developed and and, and as wealthy healthcare systems, uh, but they still have the patients and they still have the need for for, for these technologies.
0: Yeah and I agree with you actually, because when you think about how many times patients come in over years um, for battery checks or battery replacement, um, roughly how much if you I don't know if you know, um, do these batteries cost and how long do they last for?
1: Oh, it, it depends on the batteries. They can be anything from £10,000 to £25,000. Um, but they, and, and again, they last for, you know, depends on, on the company and whether they're rechargeable batteries or not. So the rechargeable batteries can last anything between 10 and 25 years, um, whilst the, uh, what we call a, you know, the, uh, a primary cell a battery, which is non-rechargeable, um, it can last anything between two years to sometimes eight years. But it, it depends on the battery size and how much you're using it. Sure. Because Every time you replace a battery, there is a risk of introducing infection. Um, and that's, that can't be taken lightly, especially if the patient is, is dependent on, on the implant and on the stimulation. Um, and if they they develop an infection, you'll need to remove the entire implant because antibiotics won't really work. Um, and that um, that can be devastating. Now in future, there's also a risk of, um, and this is not specific to neurosurgery, but to, to surgery and medicine um, overall, there is that risk of, of antibiotic resistance. And I don't want to, to to see a time where you know we are getting infections that don't respond to antibiotics and yet we're, we're needing to operate on these patients to replace their, their batteries on a regular basis because i think the risk will be much much higher um, and you know and, and complications can be devastating to these patients
0: yeah and i agree with you i suppose this is where elon musk's company <laughs> so neuralink probably has uh, already some capabilities in battery development (laughs) Um, (laughs) and they probably could focus on this I keep saying uh, we're not sponsored in any way (laughs) by Neuralink (laughs) they just seem (laughs) to be an interesting company Um, you know just a lot of
1: I don't mean to interrupt but but if you look at things like um, NASA um, and all the technology that was initially developed to allow for space travel and tend to then make its way to healthcare and to other um you know data, practical uses in in day-to-day life uh, so you know all, all scientific work is uh, can have can have beneficial effect um and i think especially something that is so well funded um and focused on you know on on brain mapping and brain machine interface that um, you know i'm, I'm quite positive that there will be um, some things that we can take out of it and, and use to help our patients.
0: Yeah, uh, and I agree with you on that, uh, because, again, just coming back to sort of the economic burden of diseases um, that are treated in functional neurosurgery. So, obviously, Parkinson's is the typical one. Um, so NICE and it has an article in the BMJ where it estimates that it costs between £16,500 16 per year per patient. And you think about the cost of the surgery and, you know, the maths, it just, it makes sense basically um, to get, you know, uh, deep brain stimulation because especially if it's caught young, um, these patients can return back to sort of some functional status. They're less dependent on needing carers and, you know, mobility and social packages. And essentially you give them the opportunity to have an extended period of normal life and, the ability to contribute towards the economy of the of the country. So it truly is phenomenal <laughs> and the work you do. Um, I've had the great pleasure of, of seeing that at work. Um, and then I just come to my final question, which is what has been the most uh, favorite what the, the favorite thing or patient condition that you've managed um, as a fun- functional neurosurgeon? Uh, uh,
1: so I mean it has to be it has to be tremor surgery. Um, And it's because we see, and I think we've done this together, um, you and I in in theatres, it's very satisfying because you can see a patient um, on the operating table and the patients are usually awake for this type of surgery, not for all deep brain stimulation surgery, but specifically for surgery for tremor. because we want to test and we want to see the effect immediately. And we can see that effect, we can see a patient who has very, very little function um, in in their hand, for example, and they can't can't write their names. And as we introduce the electrode into their brain and start delivering stimulation, we can see the immediate improvement in the function. Uh, And then the patient can, can draw or write, Uh, their names and um, you know they can drink from a cup whilst they're on the operating table Um, and I find and then they'll have a big smile on their faces and and I just find that um, always very emotional always very very satisfying.
0: Yeah and I I can testify to your patients being uh, very very satisfied and very grateful to have the surgery. I think one final question. I did say that was my final question. <laughs> oh, God. The very final question, I think, um, which a lot mm. of patients and people wonder about. Once you have these implants, can you go through airport security or do you have to be stopped at every point or do you need to go through special bits?
1: So uh, you can absolutely go through airport security They've, because they're very similar to having a, a pacemaker for the heart. And we've we've you know we've had millions of patients. Uh, around the world they've had pacemakers for the heart all you need to do is to have a, a card to tell security uh, that you have uh, a pacemaker and um, there are things that I tell my patients that they can't do after the surgery so one of them is arc welding for example um, and uh, and that's I mean I would miss that because that's something that I enjoy doing um, but I, I'm yet to meet a patient who actually does that I have met I have a patient who works with very strong magnets um, and, and I had to warn him that that's something that can interfere with the implant. Um, but most patients um, have, the, the idea is that to improve patient's quality of life. And again, it's, we're not treating, we're not treating the disease and this is not a cure. We have a patient in front of us and we have to look at what they need and how by improving some of their symptoms, how we can, help them live a better life. Um, and and that's, how we, that's how we make a decision as to what is the right thing for that individual patient. Um, but going through security at airports, um, it's, um, it's doable. Um, you just need to show them a card to say that you have a pacemaker.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and thank you for that. Um, and that is my final question so thank you so much for joining us and thank you for talking us through um all of this and uh yeah we look forward to many more things happening in this space thank thank you
1: very much ivy thank you for the invitation glad to be here thank you